Welcome to Exploring Bible Prophecy with our teacher, Steve Butler. We are in a series right now exploring the important prophecy terms found in God's Word. You can follow along with our free study guide that you can download from our website. Simply visit whcbradio.org. That's whcbradio.org. Click on the program name, Exploring Bible Prophecy, and there you will find our free study guide. Right now, Steve is exploring the important prophecy term, the Son of God. So open your Bibles, download your study guides, and prepare to explore Bible prophecy. Hello, and welcome once again to Exploring Bible Prophecy. In today's program, we're going to continue in our series, The Important Prophecy Terms, that we need to compare and contrast before we get into our overview of the next uh, 30 prophetic events that I believe the Bible tells us will take place. And I have tried to put them in chronological order uh, between now and what's called eternity, the end of the book of Revelation, the last couple of chapters. So the end of the end, if you will. Um, And I think that's going to be a very important overview as we look at those 30 prophetic events. But as I've said several times already, the purpose for what we're doing right now in our current series on prophetic terms is to understand these seven sets of terms. Term number one, for instance, is the Son of God compared and contrasted with the Son of Man. It's Jesus Christ, but it's two different manifestations of Christ. And when you understand what those terms mean, and how they're used, when you see them in the Scriptures, you can immediately get a much clearer understanding of the flow and the context of what's happening in the particular passage where you find that term, the Son of God or the Son of Man. The same thing holds true for the day of Christ or the day of the Lord. That may sound exactly to be the same thing when they are quite, quite different. So we need to understand that as it's true with all seven of these sets of terms. They're not exhaustive, but they're seven that I think are important to to have an understanding of before we launch into that overview of the prophetic events, because it will go a long way to giving you a foundational understanding that we don't have to go into again to stop and have to review uh, or or get into uh, if we do it now. So that's the reason we've... um, injected, if you will, uh, this um, review of of, uh, prophetic terms and get some clarification around them. So we're looking now, if you look at your worksheet, which you can get from this radio station's website, uh, the Son of Man is where we've been for a while, and we're getting towards the end and moving on to point number two. But as we start to wrap this up, the review of the Son of Man, we've gone over the judgmental aspect of the term the Son of Man, and we think that's, uh, I think that's been very clearly made through these different scriptures, particularly the ones in Luke 22, Mark 14, and Matthew 26, where Jesus is being accused by the governing council of the Sanhedrin, the, uh, the Pharisees and the scribes, who are all concocting this uh, fallacious argument against Jesus to try and trap him uh, into saying he is the Son of God so that they can kill him for the violating the law of blasphemy, which you find the, excuse me, in the book of Leviticus. And, of course, Jesus is not hiding the fact. He says, when they, when they say, are you the Son of God, he says, you have said it correctly. 
but then he turns around and pronounces judgment on them. He tells them that while you are saying that I am the Son of God, and that is true, that's who I have been, that I am the one that's been prophesied to you throughout the entire Old Testament, I am here and I'm ready to set up my kingdom as your king. You're not accepting me. You see me as the son of a man. So I just want you to know that the son of man is going to judge you. And we saw that very clearly in Luke 22, Mark 14, and Matthew 26. I'm going to judge you. I'm going to sit in judgment over you at what will be the uh, the great white throne judgment, which we read at the end of the book of Revelation. But I then shifted to um, look into uh, Mark, and now we're in Matthew, to show you that while he is using the term the Son of Man, always look at the context because there are times when it says the Son of Man, but it's a positive connotation, if you will, a positive use of the term, such as Mark 2 where he's talking to the paralytic, and he says that the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins. Well, only God, and they even the scribes say that in that passage in Mark chapter 2, only God can do that. Well, he says, I am God, but they're not recognizing him as such. But it says the Son of Man has the authority to forgive sins, and of course we'll see that when we look at um, the second coming of Christ when he judges the entire living world at his second coming, all the Gentiles of the world and all the Jews, in other words, every living human being uh, on the earth at the end of the tribulation, the seven-year tribulation, will be judged by Christ at his second coming to the earth, and then he will set up his kingdom. So in following along with the point that the Son of Man uh, has positive connotations as well, because after all, he is Christ, he's just not referring to himself as the Son of God because he's doing this He's making these statements. He's performing the miracle in Mark chapter 2. He's showing them how to pray uh, in Matthew chapter 6 as the son of man because Israel, even though it may be the, the disciples, the believing disciples standing right in front of him, it's for unbelieving Israel that he's doing these things, and unbelieving Israel sees him as the son of man. But it's a positive aspect. This is the the uh, the father figure, the kingly figure, the beneficent king that is uh, giving him these things, giving him the uh, the the uh, the way to pray in Matthew chapter six, and now with the um, um, Sermon on the Mount, which is actually Matthew chapter five, chapter six, and chapter seven. Um, He's telling them, here is in the in the Sermon on the Mount, how you should behave and how I will bless you in my kingdom if you accept me right now as your king, as the promised son of the living God. Here's how I will bless you. And that's what the purpose of that whole Sermon on the Mount is. But then he gets to a an aspect of this in the sermon as he's starting to wrap things up in Matthew chapter 7, and that's where I'd like to go today um, to kind of bring a closure to this particular part of looking at the, uh, the term, the Son of Man. And in Matthew chapter 7, going to verse 21, so again, as the Son of Man talking to unbelieving Israel, he's making some points here. 
In uh, Matthew chapter 7, we're going to look at uh, three verses, 21, 22, and 23. It says in verse 21 of Matthew 7, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Now when you talk about, in verse 21, to back away from the scripture just a moment, Remember we were talking about he is preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and then he's um, telling the apostles, here's how to pray uh, in Matthew 6, starting at verse 9, and specifically in verse 10 of Matthew 6, pray that the kingdom of heaven comes down and becomes the kingdom here on earth. And as part of the kingdom coming from heaven to the earth, that my will be done on the earth as my will is followed in heaven, that your will would be universal, if you will. That's what the prayer is. So when he's talking about the kingdom of heaven, it's this kingdom that would come down to the earth because Jesus is there to be the king. And you can't have a kingdom without a king. So he's saying, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Verse 22, many will say to me on that day, so he's talking about a specific day in the future, on that day, many will say, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Verse 23, And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. So he's talking about, again, as part of the uh, Sermon on the Mount, what his kingdom would be like, what the requirements are to come into the kingdom, and what will keep you from being in the kingdom And basically, he's saying here in verses 21, 22, and 23 of Matthew 7, part of the Sermon on the Mount, is that if you don't do the will of my Father, you will not enter the kingdom. In other words, you're going to be judged during that tribulation that was promised all through the Old Testament. There will be a tribulation, and at the end of that tribulation, I will judge you. And if you're not judged as being righteous, then I will cast you uh, into the lake of fire, ultimately, at the great white throne judgment. That's what's being pointed out here. So there is no rapture of the church. There's no beam of seat judgment of the church in view here. And we know that for several reasons. One, the big uh, umbrella reason is that the church hasn't even been created yet. This is early in Jesus' ministry, he is, he is there to set up his kingdom on the earth. The church isn't even in the picture. And it's not even mentioned till Matthew 16 and not even set up until after Jesus is crucified, resurrected, and has gone back to heaven. So what could he be talking about here in Matthew chapter 7 if you look at verse 22 when it says, Many will say to me on that day. That day is the tribulation. The tribulation would have been back then, 2,000 years ago, 
um, just before the setting up of his millennial kingdom if they had accepted him. But because they did not accept him, but because he is a covenant-keeping God, the promised kingdom is not done away with, but simply postponed. And it has been postponed for 2,000 years now, and I believe it's quickly getting to the point where Jesus is going to come back and he's going to set up his millennial kingdom again, but as he would have done 2,000 years ago, he will first have a tribulation where he will judge the world, come back, judge them, and then set up his kingdom. So basically what's being described here is people at the second coming of Christ in the judgment will stand before the judge at the second coming and will say, Lord, Lord, didn't we do all these things in your name? And of course, it will be done in a self-righteous way with no faith, not believing that he really is God, but that they were doing things they thought would please God. And he's saying, I know your heart, and I know that you're lying to me when you say, Lord, Lord, didn't we do all these wonderful things? And he says, I declare to them in verse 23, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. So that is a judgment in this particular case, a judgment of Israel, which we know from Ezekiel 20 and other places, will take place at the end of the seven-year tribulation. So he's describing that point in time right here, and he's describing it to them as the Son of Man because they do not recognize him as the Son of God. So he's being totally upfront with him, with Israel, and giving them, if you will, both sides of the ledger. The Sermon on the Mount is full of uh, grace, full of blessing, if the people will simply believe him for who he is. But he's making it very clear, as he should and as he does, because he is just as much a just God as he is a righteous God. He's giving them both sides of the ledger here, and he's saying that there's going to be a period of time when I'm going to judge and if you, come at, if you come to the judgment in a self-righteous way, I will judge you as a self-righteous person, and I will send you away, you who practice lawlessness. So that is, that is a, a side of Christ that we generally don't uh, pay much attention to, but it is very real that he is a just God as well, because he says in verse 21, the one who does the will of my Father will enter into the kingdom. Well, let's, let's finish up here, and let's, let's find a passage that gives us an idea. What is the will of the Father? Because if it applies here, it'll apply later on as well. We need to find out, even as the church, and I shouldn't say even, the church as well uh, is admonished to determine what is the will of the Father. Because if we can find that out and we can be about his will, we will please him. And that's really why we're on the earth, is to please our Father. So let's go to Matthew chapter 21, Matthew chapter 21, and let's look in Matthew chapter 21, starting at verse 28, Matthew 21, verse 28, it says, but what do you think? A man has two sons, and he came to the first and said, son, go work today in the vineyard. And his son, he answered, I will not. But afterward, he regretted it and went. 
verse 30. The man came to the second and said the same thing. And he answered, I will, sir. But he did not go. Verse 31, which of the two did the will of his father? They said the first. Jesus said to them, truly I say to you that the tax collectors and prostitutes will get into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes did believe him. And you, seeing this, did not, even, did not feel remorse afterward so as to believe him. So he is talking to a group of unbelievers and because he's castigating him, if you will, in verse 32. He said, he came to you in the way of righteousness, and you didn't believe him. And those who did believe him, the, the tax collectors and the prostitutes, of course, remember now, these council of Sanhedrin and, and Pharisees and scribes and so forth, they looked down their noses at these people, the tax collectors and the prostitutes and so forth. And when they did accept um, the the message from John the Baptist and, of course, from Christ. They did not even feel remorse afterward. His point being, up in verse 29, it says, uh, the first person, which is basically the tax collectors and the prostitutes, they initially um, did not want to follow the good news of Christ. But afterwards, they regretted that they had um, denied it, and they turned around and accepted it. And therefore, they would enter the kingdom of kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God that's being talked about here in Matthew. But the the Pharisees and the Sadducees and all the other unbelievers, uh, in their self righteousness, you know, believing and thinking in their minds, I don't need anything but myself. I am self righteous. Christ is castigating him here, and saying, "You didn't even have remorse afterwards, uh, as they did." Um, and you notice in verse 30 that it is talking about these uh, Sadducees and Pharisees because it says the man came, the father came to the second son and said the same thing, and the son answered, I will, sir, but he did not go. In other words, he put on the airs. He acted as if he were righteous, and that's the self-righteous aspect we're talking about here. Sure, I'll do it, and I'll, I'll make it look good as I'm doing it, but he never really does it. It's all a matter of the head that never gets into the heart. And that makes the difference between heaven and hell, that those who do the will of the Father, that try to please him, that when they're asked to go into the vineyard to work, even though they may um, not want to do it in the beginning, that they regret that bad decision and that they, the, through the work of the Holy Spirit, they're led to Christ, and they're led to, yes, I want to be part of your kingdom, and therefore they are accepted into his kingdom. So we see the, the gracious side of Christ here uh, extended to those, even though he's known as the Son of Man, uh, his graciousness and his love is extended to those who accept him for who he is and ultimately do see him as the Son of God. So we're going to um, finish up this look at the Son of Man and as you look on your worksheet, you'll see some verses out of Matthew 24 and 25 and want to spend just a little bit of time there uh, to finish up the look here to make sure we have a full composite picture of the Son of Man as compared to the Son of God 
and then we'll move on to point number two in our worksheet. But now we want to transition to our Q&A, and we were in Matthew 24 and Matthew 25 in our last program as we're um, really in a kind of a mini teaching series here on the work of the Holy Spirit, looking at how the Holy Spirit manifested himself in the Old Testament, then how he manifested himself in the church age, or what we might call most of the New Testament. And then, and I say most of the New Testament because basically the Gospels are actually part of the Old Testament because the New Testament didn't start until the church when, uh, in Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost, when Christ leaves the earth, goes back to heaven, sitting at the right hand of the Father, and the Holy Spirit becomes a very active um, um, third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit uh, indwells the church. The Holy Spirit had never indwelt anyone on a permanent basis until the church. That's the major distinctive difference with the church. So the Holy Spirit would come on someone in the Old Testament that was righteous, but the Holy Spirit would leave that person if they lapsed into unrighteousness. And if they were found unrighteous, even though they had been righteous, if they were in an unrighteous state at the time of their death, they went to hell. Contrarywise, if they were righteous at the end, having been an unrighteous person most of their life, but they became righteous through faith at the end of their life and died, they would be with Christ uh, forever as an Old Testament saint. The church, the Holy Spirit indwells you forever, never leaves you, but the church is going to be taken off the earth in what is called the rapture that um, signals the uh, beginning, basically, of the seven-year tribulation period that we've been talking about, and then we go into the millennial kingdom. During that seven-year tribulation, the Holy Spirit will go back to manifesting himself the way he did in the Old Testament. In other words, uh, you must maintain your righteousness to the end of the tribulation in order to be saved. And we see that uh, exact phraseology in Matthew chapter 24, verses 13 and 14. And very quickly, let's look at that again. Matthew 24, 13 and 14. But the one who endures to the end, the end of the tribulation, he will be saved. So we're talking salvation. If this were the church, we'd be talking about rewards, but this is not talking about the church. Nowhere in Matthew 24 or 25 is the church in view at all. Because in 14 it says this gospel of the kingdom. Remember the gospel of the kingdom was preached until Jesus determined that Israel was refusing him as their king when he was here 2,000 years ago stopped preaching the gospel of the kingdom and turned to the gospel of grace of the church age. When the church is taken out of the way at the rapture, the gospel of the kingdom will be brought, will be brought back into view because the view will be Israel once again. So you see that in 14, the gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world during the tribulation as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come the end of the tribulation. So to give us an idea of, of um, the manifestation of the Holy Spirit during the tribulation, we find that, I believe, very clearly spelled out in the parable of the ten virgins. And we pointed out in our last program that Matthew 24 and Matthew 25 are all the same talk, 
all the same speech that Jesus gave to those handful of apostles as he sat on the Mount of Olives, as is described at the beginning of Matthew 24. And he goes through and, and goes into detail to answer their question, what are the signs of your coming and the end of the age? The signs of his coming back to the earth and the end of the age, which would be the end of the tribulation period. So he describes, Jesus describes in detail in Matthew 24, the um, tribulation period and his second coming. And then he admonishes them, his listeners, and therefore Israel, he admonishes them through eight parables. There are eight parables that are found between Matthew 24 and Matthew 25. Remember, it's the same speech. We know that because the first verse of Matthew 26 says, when Jesus had finished all these words. So again, it's all the same speech. It's all the same subject. It's here's how I'm going to come back. I'm going to judge. And here's eight parables with the single theme all the way through all eight parables of be ready, be ready, maintain your righteousness until I come, and then I will find you righteous and I will bless you. So in Matthew 25, verse 1, we have the parable of the ten virgins, and this is the number six of the eight parables. And it says in Matthew 25, verse 1, Then the kingdom of heaven will be comparable to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish, and five were prudent. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the prudent took oil in flasks along with their lamps. Now while the bridegroom was delaying, they all got drowsy and began to sleep. But at midnight there was a shout, Behold the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. The foolish said to the prudent, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the prudent answered, No, there will not be enough for us and you too. Go instead to the dealers and buy some for yourselves. And while they were going away to make the purchase, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the wedding feast, and the door was shut. Later the other virgins also came, saying, Lord, Lord, open up for us. Verse 12, But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Verse 13, Be on the alert then, for you do not know the day nor the hour. Now I want to spend um, at least uh, the next uh, Q&A portion of the next program going over a number of points to be made in these 13 verses that I believe when we finish with those points going over them, you will clearly see that this is a description of the tribulation period, and this is a description of how the Holy Spirit interacts with people, that those who have the Holy Spirit will go in to see um the church and Jesus, the husband at the wedding feast, uh, 
and those who do not have the Holy Spirit will not be allowed in, that you have to maintain the Holy Spirit throughout in order to go in. So hopefully we'll be able to make that a clear understanding in the next program or two. But until we uh, meet again, remember, if we don't talk again, I'll be seeing you in the air. Thank you for joining us on this edition of Exploring Bible Prophecy. Our special offer this month is Consider the Ant, Volume 1, The Basics. Consider the Ant is a biblically-based look at emergency preparedness. You'll be taken through the steps necessary to prepare yourself for the unexpected. This special DVD can be yours for only $20. To get your copy of Volume 1, The Basics from Consider the Ant, simply call us at 878-6279. That's 423-878-6279. Exploring Bible Prophecy is a production of WHCB. Learn more at whcbradio.org.